It's Thursday night and we're back in the Feathers pub in Westminster for another edition of On the House, where we have a weekly pint or two after politics. I'm Philip Lee, Liberal Democrat Member of Parliament for Bracknell and candidate for Wokingham. And we've just hot-footed it from the Commons following three votes um, around the Queen's speech, which passed. Don't listen to anyone who says that Parliament's against what the government wants to do. They've just got their Queen's speech through, so I don't know what they're complaining about. A lot has happened um, since we last gathered here um, at the Feathers. Boris Johnson's Super Saturday turned into more of a multicoloured flop shop. That's a cultural reference for those of you who were born around about 1970. Johnson was forced to write that letter to Donald Tusk, although he didn't sign it. Apparently that makes it invalid, like crossing your fingers or saying not under your breath. Increasingly, I feel like I'm going back to nursery by being, uh, while serving in this house. I don't know when uh, Downing Street is going to grow up and stop playing these silly childish games. On Monday, the Prime Minister won a first reading vote for, the, for his withdrawal bill, the first Brexit bill to actually pass a Commons vote, but lost control of the subsequent timetable of that bill. So now the much-vaunted Johnson deal is now on pause. It's not a delay, it's a pause, apparently, while the government works out what it wants to do next. Does it know? As usual... I'm joined by Sam Gima, MP for East Surrey. Our special guest today is one of the stars of political commentary. They're already calling him the Paxman Koonsberg Peston of the 2020s. He's a regular on the BBC and Sky News, co-host of the hit Brexit podcast Romaniacs, and he's got a book coming out in February that will be very useful to newly signed Liberal Democrats like Philip and me. <laughs> it's called... How to be a liberal. <laughs> He'll be helping us unpick what happened this week, including the likelihood of a general election. It's the editor of politics.co.uk, Ian Dunt. Hello, hello. How are hello, you? Ian. Welcome to On the House. How are you? Good, yeah. I have done uh, quite a few podcasts before. I've never actually done a podcast in a pub before in my life, so this is a, this is a weird new experience for me. Enjoy. Uh, thank you very much, I will. I mean, I can't see how anything won't be improved by having a beer in my hand, so it should be OK. So, uh, just sort of diving in quickly, what's your take on the Queen's speech vote? The policies are hardly likely to go into effect. Is it just a political virility test? Yeah, I mean, even that is almost giving it too much credit, right? I mean, I'm assuming you would have done this to death, but it's like the most pantomime horseshit I've ever seen in my life. And then to see uh, your colleague, Tom Brake, ask the, the right question immediately after the vote, we sort of stood up and went, well, you guys have just announced a general election, so perhaps you could tell me what the fucking point was <laughs> of the Queen's speech you just put forward. It is absolute nonsense. To which, by the way, Jacob Rees-Mogg replied saying, yes, we've now passed the Queen's speech with a majority. We've got to second reading on one of the bills and this is one of the great political achievements of modern times that's a direct quote from him and you just think well you guys are just I mean you're, you're basically now almost functionally insane and that would really is, is the manner in which I would take the Queen's speech just at best it is PR with some pomp whistles on it yeah no, I think that's right but um, looking at it 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 tells you so much about the current state of the Conservative Party right <laughs> a Queen's speech that's long on spending promises um, but doesn't actually tell you how those promises are going to be delivered. Mm. I thought that there is a deceit at the heart of it. The deceit is that somehow they want to fight an election saying nothing has changed. We've been good stewards of the economy. So 
let us do it again, when actually they're going into that election potentially with the, a hard Brexit offer that will damage the very people that they are pitching this Queen's speech to. And I just thought, this is just, it's all just, it's not just PR, it's just deceiving the public. Yeah, exactly. about the state of the government and what the government can do. And the economics, right? I mean, the economics of it are really quite deranged. So, I mean, it would be possible. You could have a government that would say, look, Brexit means tough times. We've got no investment. We haven't had any investment for a long time. So we clearly need to stimulate the economy. We're going to do a classic Keynesian stimulus. We're going to pump some money into police, into hospitals. And that, that is perfectly coherent, and I would support it. But that is not what's actually happening. What's actually happening is you're going to pretend that Brexit does no damage. You have no plan for how you're going to make any of this money back. And then you simultaneously say, what is it people want to hear about? Schools, you know, whatever. Because that's our only way of getting through this thing. So there's no coherence to it. There's no thinking to any there's of no it. no program. Exactly. It's really fucking like economically dangerous stuff. The well, stuff would work if you had a plan. It's chaotic, isn't it? I mean, one gets the sense that they're just making it up as they go along, and there is this aura that they've created themselves of being much cleverer than everybody else. <laughs> and it turns out it's bollocks. <laughs> but actually, they're not. And, and, and so the, the problem... That I'm not we... really sure what you think of them, Philip. Can you, can, <laughs> can you, can you stop sitting on the fence? And I, and I, I, sort, of, I, I sort of sit here and I, and I just think, right, what is it about us, Sam, as politicians who are against this, that we are struggling to get over to the wider public, enough of the wider public, how truly dreadful this administration is? What is it? I mean, is it possibly... I mean, there was a very... Interesting article I tweeted this week by Peter Oborn about the the behaviour of the media in terms of how they're passing on lines that are being leaked out of number 10. And essentially, they're like courtiers, they're not like journalists. Is it that? I, I don't know, but I, 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 I think it doesn't reflect well upon us, Sam, at the moment, that they're getting away with this crap. And I don't know what we can do. Obviously, we have our podcast, Sam, and with a growing listenership, we're told, maybe this is our way of doing it. You're laughing at me, Sam. I'm trying to believe this. (laughs) (laughs) I think we'll come on to that. Uh, We'll come on to that uh, later on. But I want want to stick with you another moment. You are famous for your tweeting and reporting marathons in the house. Are you getting worn out? No, not really. I'm a bit emotionally exhausted by the whole thing, but that's more of a three-year... Because, you know, there's this sort of... So basically what happened three years ago was you just sort of see this fundamental change in the country, which is like, I can see now all of my values are at stake with what's going on, which is much more than just trade or much more even than like freedom movement. It's basically like, this is a challenge to liberal values. That's what's happening right now and it could last for the rest of my life. And when you live in that world for three years of just feeling like the constant, thank you, someone has just brought me a beer. It's the most beautiful thing that's ever fucking happened for the whole of today. Welcome to On The House. (laughs) Um, When you live through that for three years, there's this point of like it can be hard to keep your it can be hard to keep your spirits up but like with the, in terms of like you know when my job involves sitting down typing out where like people have harder jobs than that man <laughs> like right. much harder so I, yeah I, I deserve no sympathy so, on that. so okay but 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 i mean parliament is i mean getting a terrible kick in from the brexit press at the moment house of fools they've wrecked it again how, how can you be objective 
that Parliament is actually trying to do a good job at the moment. I mean, I happen to think that our parliamentary democracy is thriving. It's more that it's not doing what the executive wants. <laughs> yeah, I mean, one uh, might even think that's a good thing in yeah, some way. Yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. <laughs> Parliament is not there to purely serve the executive. And at times of great stress and strain and controversy, you are there are going to be inevitable clashes. Um, but the press seems to have sort of taken against Parliament. How do you report objectively? Okay, well, I mean, I think th the first thing is to get rid of the idea of, of balance, the idea that there's always two sides to everything. Sometimes there's much more than two. Sometimes there is just one. And just to get rid of that idea of, like, some kind of false binary that approaches everything. The second one is then just to say for a start, and this is the base level of this is what is happening in Parliament right now, and this is how it works, and to use normal human language to explain relatively complex processes. But like lots of the, the archaic terms that we see, it's really not very difficult to, uh, to explain that stuff. It can be done, and you can do it in a way that is dramatic, that is dynamic, that still keeps people interested, and there is a, a democratic function to that. Instead, what we've mostly seen, so from the press with their own you know, tribal strategic interests, are portraying it as the enemy. But the trouble is, that even in parts of the BBC, not all of it, but parts of the BBC, we've seen this just sort of patronising attitude towards its own listeners and viewers that assumes that they are not capable of understanding what's going on, whether it's on trade or parliamentary procedure, and that they're not interested enough in doing so, even if they could understand it. So it's simplified to the point of infantilization and misleading. That really, I think, is where the heart of our problem is. I also think the BBC are just overcompensating. I mean, we all know, everybody knows, the majority of people at the BBC will have voted Remain. Yeah? So therefore, they're, they're anxious not to be portrayed as being in anything other than balanced. So to, to offset that imbalance, they're being, I don't know, how should we say, a bit more... They're more inclined to, to give the Brexit view. And I, and I think that this is... It actually goes to the heart of the quality of journalism... And allow me to use a medical example here. No, Philip. Yeah. No. <laughs> because, it, because it actually matters. Sam, shut up. <laughs> the MMR scandal, in inverted commas, it wasn't a scandal. The MMR vaccine was absolutely fine. Virtually every member of the medical profession knew it was. And yet, one nutcase doctor comes along claims by falsifying his evidence that it's got a chance of causing autism. The BBC's approach to this was to offer both sides of the argument, yeah? So they gave as much time to people who were propagating something that had absolutely no evidence base as to the other side, which had all the evidence to say, no, it's absolutely fine, and in fact not taking it is of, of risk, higher risk to the broader public health. And I've put this point to a senior BBC executive and said, look, you don't give equal time to, to bullshit and to truth. Yeah? You, have to, you have to decide what is actually has value. There's an evidence behind it as a case. Now, in the case of Brexit, there may be coherent arguments on the basis of sovereignty and everything else, and I'm sure most of us around this table would think it was a nonsense. But there would be an argument. There is not an argument to be giving time to people to claim things that are not true. And I do think that all media outlets and the BBC, because of its power within the media within Britain, 
which I don't question a public sector broadcaster, but they have real power in this because they have such influence over public mood, should reflect upon that, that they don't propagate things that actually have no evidence behind them because that isn't in the national interest. I think, I think that's, that's definitely true, but there's also something that, something that I think the BBC misses, that in its efforts to give balance to a debate, it legitimizes views mm -hmm. and so if you have a view that is not based in fact evidence and is actually a cynical attempt to manipulate the debate by giving it a platform you can actually be legitimizing it because people think that's fine we can believe in this but my real concern throughout all of this has been whether the way the Westminster lobby operates is suitable for reporting on something like Brexit and by what I mean is the Westminster lobby um, thrives on sources and contacts. And you believe that if someone in a government department says, this is what we're doing, that is true. But what if you have a situation where the government actually doesn't always have an interest in revealing the truth or using its position to misinform or disinform and there are so many instances of this the number of briefings over the last few weeks of how the government was going to subvert the ben act you know and all of it it turns out were just totally made up you know or there was that long um sort of text message with the spectator um published mm -hmm. which essentially where a downing street source said if any one of the eu 27 agreed to an extension you know, they will be punished, whereas an extension could only happen if all of them agreed to it. But this, this kind of stuff is reports. I think if you have a system that prizes proximity, access and reporting on sources, then it's not really well positioned to be critical because everyone wants access, ultimately. I think, like, so uh, the problem, I think, is actually further back than the lobby. The problem is in the editorial rooms of the newspapers and the BBC, where they decide to give the lobby priority on the Brexit story. So, for instance, when you're at the BBC, there's loads of trade experts at the BBC, there's loads of local experts, there's loads of people that will tell you about almost any aspect that Brexit impacts, but they didn't give it to them. They gave the Brexit story to Milbank. And that was a fucking problem, because Milbank knows how to do one thing, which is to say, he said, she said, political, basically soap opera. But that was a choice that wasn't made. I mean, that machine should operate the way it operates. The problem is behind that machine, when you decide that this is a story for them, rather than, for instance, as Sky News did, when this is a fiendish technical exercise, and we need to have some guys out there talking to hauliers, talking to fright, etc. But you know what? Even on the, the Brexit story, and I, I, hope, I hope he doesn't mind me telling you this story, but a good friend of Salmonar's is Gito Beb. He's been on On the House previously. He's a star. Gitto has been involved from the very outset of the parliamentary counting the numbers, whipping everybody else, for, for at least 12 months, if not longer. A member of the lobby contacted him, took him out. Two people took him out for lunch this week because they'd heard that he was quite influential in terms of working out what the strategy was going forward. And, and he, he, he said to me... Um, I've been doing this now for over 12 months. Now, he might argue it's because he's really clever at just staying subterranean and keeping out of sight. But what does it say about the quality of the lobby that they didn't realise that Gitto Beb was quite integral to the whole campaign for a people's vote? Because Gitto... And that's called almost every yeah, vote. Yeah, yeah, within one or two, two votes. One or two I mean, votes. Yeah, so, so, so the thing is, is that Gitto's not a person who wants 
sort of prominence, high prominence. My point is not about him personally, it's about the quality of the lobby to find out actually who knows what's going on. Because we knew throughout, we've known throughout this year, give or take one or two, where the votes were going. And it was a lot of hard work, trusted sources, connections across parties and everything else. And the lobby woke up to this this week in some, in some quarters. And it, and it just says, you're right, Ian, it's, they're, they're very good at the he says, she said, and all the lobby stuff. But they're not even actually that good at that because they don't actually go for the interviews of the people who know. They'll go with the people who've got, I don't know, the rep- sort of making representations. Per- personalities you, 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 you do have to make some errors, though, before you hit the thing. So, I mean, a lot of those lunches are just like, it's worth a shot. Because, you know, you're going here, you're going there, and eventually you hit pay dirt. So I, I wouldn't conclude too much from the lunch itself. But I always have to say, most of those guys are much better at that shit than I am. I'm, I'm looking so forward to my lunch places. with you, I was thinking. <laughs> hey, man, I have no expense account. No one's getting shit around me. OK, should we get into the events of, of the week? I mean, it's, it's only been a week, but so much has happened so but let's try and do it chronologically super saturday and the let win amendment you know the press call this humiliating did johnson push his luck too far what does let win mean for the deal will it happen i mean in a sense it already feels that we've gone beyond that but i think we should spend just a little bit of time on that before we we move on do you do, do, do you want to comment on that ian honestly as you were talking about it, i was like it's hard for me to even remember, and that wasn't very long ago, but it does feel like a very it's long Super time Saturday, ago. Super Saturday, when um, yeah. Boris was going to get his deal through. No, I remember. You well, know, and um, I, I mean, he was going to be the all-conquering hero. <laughs> Do you remember that? It's one of two moments this week where I've sat with like my heart in my throat. The other one is obviously the... Um, the program motion vote because on either one of those that was the point where that this thing could have just been done this could be all over right now and it got through i mean on that it, it, you can't overstate the importance of of that amendment like if it wasn't for that amendment right now brexit would be happening it is as simple as that and it's quite things i mean probably we're not going to see any more of that bill in parliament it's uncertain given what's happened since but if we do there was a lot of anger towards letwin three days later when he was then voting with the government it was like hang on we get to the progress that we get to because certain people compromise where they can and don't where they can't and he's one of those and he's been clear throughout he's been perfectly consistent i'll vote for a deal i want it done properly i disagree with him for his vote on tuesday but if he hadn't done what he'd done on Saturday, we would be in a much worse place now than we are as it is. Well, I mean, Johnson would have what they call in politics the big mo, which he, he, he doesn't have. But what I really want to dwell on, this is a personal thing of mine, on this is he said he would die in a ditch <laughs> if he couldn't deliver Brexit by the 31st. And I feel that since then, not enough ink has been spilled on the fact that do or die on the 31st, it's not going to happen. And it's not going to happen because it was never going to happen and he made undeliverable promises to win the Tory leadership. And, um, but nobody's talking about it. The fact that he's failed to do the one and only thing that he said he was going to deliver as Prime Minister. I think the key moment has got to come on November the 1st, right? 
I mean, on November the 1st is when we really find out, can you make anything stick to it? Because if on November the 1st, that is not the story, is that you said we would never be here, and yet here we are. It's November the 1st. And I think that's what it takes. Everything else is incremental change. He lies, he lies, there's a tacit acceptance. He lies, he lies, there's a tacit acceptance. Happened again today. On November the 1st, there's no more room for any of that shit. And at that point, if it's going to do damage to him, that'll be the day that it happens. November the 1st. So what was the purpose then of not signing the Tusk letter? You know, I mean, or kind of that sort of um, three letters, however many letters, or is it just red meat to the Brexit press? I mean, come on. This is the Prime Minister of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. It is in law that he is to send a letter on October the 19th on behalf of his country. You sign the bloody letter, don't you? What difference does it make whether he signs it or not? What is it? Is this, is this some sort of parlour game that we're playing? Is this some sort of wall game, uh, you know, at Eton? Are there, are there, there's some unwritten rules that I don't know about, about how you're supposed to behave in these circumstances. As far as I'm concerned, it was the law of the land, the letter was sent, it was drafted in legislation, and the Prime Minister of the day signs it. And if he doesn't want to sign it, find somebody, maybe the Cabinet Secretary, who signs it on your behalf. This is all just silly games and the two side letters. And I mean, really, I think the public need to wake up to who's actually in charge here and ask the question, do you really want these people to be running the country? Because I'm not so sure that the majority of the public do. I agree. I think he showed he's unfit for the office he holds. I mean, this is him as the Prime Minister interacting with the European Commission and 27 other nations, and he was behaving like a petulant child. There were reports he was showing texts from Macron in the tea room. The, the Prime Minister is showing text from Macron. But fucking hell, Macron's having a terrible Brexit as well. We can add him to the list of people that are having a bad Brexit. Like the kind of like, scheming that is going on there is so short-sighted, even on its own terms, even on what he requires. So what, what do you mean? Do you just be clear? So, I mean, sorry, yeah. So, I mean, the main pressure right now to not give us an extension until January 31st comes from France. Now, it's been the case for some time that people around Macron, some people around Macron, have thought that it might be possible that no deal wouldn't be such a bad thing for France. Takes a bit of a short term here. In the long term, you're there to soak up much more capacity from London, aviation, financial services, various So, so it's in the French national interest to have a bad Brexit. Some people around Some people. Macron. So, so there is a view around him, that's the case. And I don't think that's pertinent here, but what it does do is it's just sort of massage the anxiety around it down. So he then feels he wants to portray to a domestic audience, he wants to demonstrate in a way that it will be popular in parts of France that I can make Britain look like a second-tier country off the back of centuries of us having this obvious sort of, you know, we are equals and we're going to challenge in that way. And he corresponds to the emotional need that lots of people have in Europe, but just saying, is, this is a negative story. It's a negative story. It's about breakup. It follows us fucking everywhere. Why can't someone make it go away? And he's done all of that. And what's he come up with? Proposals. When he makes these things like fucking a 14-day extension, you're like, what kind of Mickey Mouse bullshit is that? That doesn't get us anywhere. And like, for you to talk that way is, by the way, it is a fucking interference in the way that our domestic politics plays out and is wrong strategically in its own terms. But what's interesting is Brexiteers see him as an ally. Incredible. <laughs> Fucking amazing. I know. You know Macron, Macron will come to the rescue. He'll come to the rescue <laughs> so that we ruin our country. 
and that yeah. they benefit. But, it, but it's just like the foreign secretary going on television uh, last week, uh, weekend and saying Northern Ireland should vote for the deal because it's good for business because they have access to the single market. That is I mean, so I, true. I mean, I sort of think, hang on a minute, foreign secretary, I'd quite like that for the Thames Valley. Um, <laughs> you know, so, so I sort of, you know, I mean, it's quite a remarkable set of affairs, isn't it, really? Yeah. So, so we, we then get to Monday. So that we've done Saturday now, but Monday... The withdrawal agreement voted through by the timetable derailed. Does getting a second reading actually count as victory, as we've seen the Conservative Party's online advertising campaign suggest that the Brexit bill has been passed? It's beyond comedy, this. I mean, I mean, we all know that Labour members were given a bit of a pass, shall we say, to be able to show a bit of leg to the Leave voters. You mean, by, was it virtue signalling? voting for second reading. We all know that this <laughs> happened. You only had, there's no way that there's a majority for this bill of 30 in the House. So the problem is, is that it goes back to my point about the way in which the public are manipulated by clever messaging. And what do you do about that? Because if there's one thing I will grant this operation in number 10, is they know how to come up with pithy one-liners. They know how to come up with hashtags. I mean, it isn't a way to govern a country in the 21st century. That's for sure. For sure. But it doesn't way, way to, to win, win elections. elections. <laughs> and I think that, you know, I've long had concerns about the for want of a better description, the Remain side of things in terms of how it can, they campaign. But we have to wake up. We have to get the public to wake up to the reality that it isn't in their best interests. It might sound superficially attractive. It might be being delivered by somebody who's quite good at sort of pulling his shirt out before, uh, out of his trousers before he does an interview. But you know what? It isn't in the best national interest. It isn't in the best interest of the majority of the British public. But, I mean, F Philip, you, you were a great observer of these things. I mean, I think there were a lot of people who, when they saw the majority of 30 for second reading, thought Johnson's deal, if he persists with it, is a slam dunk. I don't think so. I, I get the feeling that you don't think so at all. Can you just explain kind of why that majority wouldn't necessarily persist in having passed the deal? I mean, look... It was, it was obvious it was coming because there was a trade going on with some colleagues. And I understand that some Labour members of Parliament are in difficult situations with regards to heavy leave votes in their constituencies. And they all privately will say, I know this is not good for my constituency, but I have a you know, big problem, 60-70% Labour vote. I've got to show I've voted so, so, leave. So, so when you're trying to persuade them to vote against the programme motion, which was the vote that mattered uh, the other day, well, because if they can't table the committee stages, you don't have a bill. You don't, you know, you can't progress with this. The deal doesn't happen. Despite all that BS on Facebook that the Tory party is churning out about the deal was passed, it wasn't passed. It was just a stage in Parliament was achieved. Well, that st stage was achieved because it was allowed to happen because those Labour members again then felt they had the cover to vote against the programme motion. It's taken me, what, 45 seconds to explain that. That doesn't fit on a meme. It doesn't fit in a pithy little tweet. And but, but why, why wouldn't the they stick with the deal? Argument. It's because but our arguments are always complex and nuanced. But why wouldn't, the these, why wouldn't these Labour MPs stick with the deal? I mean, they've shown a bit of leg, as you say. They voted for it at second reading. Let's say it gets a programme motion. Why wouldn't they stick with it? Because they know 
that it is not legally binding on workers' rights. They know that the political declaration, which is essentially a, like a letter to Father Christmas, um, is not going to be implemented. Yeah, they know this. So, so it doesn't cost them anything in reality to vote for second reading. It would cost them in reality if they voted for third reading. That's not to say the government couldn't get it through at third reading. But the idea they're going to get it through with a majority of 30 is for the birds. But they could Look get it through. Look at those nuts. There are so many nuts on this table. I didn't, I'd heard um, about this. He means Nobby's nuts, um, by the way. I mean, just, like just, just, it's <laughs> extraordinary the rate that you get through. And yet I have a figure as good as mine, Ian. <laughs> you, go, you, you go for you. Go figure. <laughs> Right. So, so, so just, just sort of moving this on. So, I mean, one of the things that um, we've all been discussing over the last um, week or, or since the deal, um, so to speak, was this, it's a trapdoor to no deal. And kind of what really happens if this deal were to pass Parliament. And I think we should spend just a little bit of time exploring that. Because I know there are some remain, remainers who are saying... I'm bored of Brexit, passed a deal, whatever that hashtag is. So we need to explain, I think it's worth explaining, why this deal doesn't do what Johnson said it does. It says it does. Yeah, so I mean, there's a trapdoor basically halfway through next year. You have to extend by December 2020. And when you extend, you can do it for one year or two, up to two years, no longer than that. However, you have to make the decision on that in summer 2020. So by the time you do this, you've got a few short months before you get to the next cliff edge, basically. And we know exactly how that'll play out. They'll obviously play out with the ERG, sort of Brexit jihadists saying, oh, we've got to use this as leverage. Same shit we've heard for three years. And then the more reasonable side going, oh, we absolutely can't do this and blah, blah, blah. However, there's more complexities to it even than that. Because I think within the guts of the deal, there are completely contradictory ideas. So the first one is... Please explain. So in the political declaration, it says no single market, no customs union. Then it says the House can try and direct us in what we do in the future relationship, but only in a way that doesn't contradict what's in the future relationship document. So the House does not have the right, under how it is right now, in order to say, well, you've got to join the customs union. However, there's... And why is the customs union thing an issue? Just explain. I mean, customs union is quite popular around wavering Labour MPs, say someone like Liz and Andy or someone. Because ultimately, even though, frankly, customs union is infinitely less important than the single market, but, you know, those kind of reasonings are for a world that still made fucking sense, and this one doesn't. So we're going to talk about the customs union. It matters more with manufactured goods than it does with services. So therefore, will be more important to Labour MPs. However, there's also a poison pill in there for the ERG lot. Because even with the ERG lot, what Boris Johnson caved in on when he was talking to, to the EU were basically the three main asks of the US in any free trade agreement. He caved in on sanitary and phytosanitary standards. He caved in on uh, industrial standards, the sort of web of... Um, of ways of doing business that exist above regulation across the world, which would suggest that we'd be in the European ecosystem rather than the American one. And he caved in on geographical indications, which is the way the EU likes to protect certain areas of industry, 
and is opposed to the way the Americans like to do it. So funnily enough, everyone gets fucked in his deal. You don't get single market and customs union soft Brexit, but the ERG lot have all these lock-ins. I mean, if you go for an FTA, a free trade agreement with the EU, you don't, it would be deep enough that it would block off having a meaningful one with the US. Now, what that creates to me is the conditions for warfare on Brexit in exactly the way we've had it so far, immediately on the other side of the bill being passed, and then coming up to a fucking deadline in summer 2020, which is literally, you know, eight months from now. So the like, clock is still ticking, Brexit doesn't get done, and we're still fighting the same battle we've been fighting for three and a half and years. And everyone has the same incentives to fight each other and exactly the same kind of eye-watering, pointless yeah, timetable. But in their ideal world, with a completely different parliament. Exactly. Yeah, quite right. And that's yeah. why, you know, going for a general election, there is risk. Of course, not going for a general You could go for a general election and can get a confirmatory vote supporting parliament. But at the moment, it's difficult to know you're going to get that. You could get a Brexit supporting... I mean, you know, the chances of the person replacing me in Bracknell being some soft and cuddly Tory who believes in the European Union, <laughs> I think are pretty remote. Yeah, so there's an extra vote there. For you, you, you'll be Bracknell's last soft yeah. and cuddly yeah. remaining Tory. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I will be Bracknell's last member of parliament that votes in the economic interests of Bracknell. Uh, is to be blunt, and and I think if you look across um, House, there are a number of people standing down. It's over a thirty, you know, in the Tory side, and it's growing. Sounds like some of them are being forced to retire if they're not getting the the uh, the uh, whip back. So you're looking at 30, 40, 50, and if my former association is anything to go by, they're going to be 40 to 50 Brexiteers. So the idea, if the Conservative Party wins a majority, they're going to suddenly go for customs union, EEA, and everything else. It isn't going to be the case. They're more likely to go for an even harder form of Brexit, which is why you look across the, the chambers we do, Sam, and you see all of these arguments now being rehearsed. It's quite fantastic, really, to, to listen to Bill Cash and Bernard Jenkins talk about how it's important to consult the public. I'm thinking, hang on a minute, we consulted the public in 2017. The public has had its say and elected us all and Parliament for five years on a fixed-time parliament, and now you're saying that you want to... Oh, no, 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 we need to go to the public again because it's not going your way, Bernard. Well, forgive me for not thinking that you're being perhaps cynical in manipulating the public and manipulating the way our democracy works just because it's not going your way. If they get their general election um, and then they proceed to, to get a majority... All of our former colleagues, Sam, who are all soft and cuddly and once believed in the European Union, but the lure of a red box has persuaded them otherwise, are going to be part of an administration that is delivering a hard Brexit at best. And I think that for them to do that, well, that's on their conscience. It's not something that I could have ever done. So what we're saying is you have a deal that can lead to no deal very easily, and you potentially have a Conservative Party that is a no-deal Conservative Party, or as far away from a soft Brexit as possible, which means that if Boris Johnson's deal gets through, not only does it not get Brexit done, but all the dynamics are that we will have the hardest possible Brexit. Every MP there would owe him their seat, so they dare not rebel, and haven't got rid of 21 MPs from the party 
no one will rebel because if you rebel, you're, that's curtains for you. So it is incredibly risky to allow this deal to pass if you are a Remainer and you believe that our national interest is in the um, European Union. Absolutely. Can I put one caveat on the no deal thing? Yes. It's worth mentioning that basically, like, it's, it, there are, it's a no deal in trade terms. Where it isn't a no deal is on things like the budgetary payments and EU citizens' rights. However, even on EU citizens' rights, it still makes me fucking uncomfortable because what they're saying, and they don't need to say this, is that if you're not signed up by the end of 2020 on the Settled Status Scheme, then Home Office will come for you. That basically, I mean, in the explanatory notes, it's put it's, actually it's quite fucking aggressively. Too. I saw that, yeah. Right. And like, what we know from all of the research, and there's been quite a lot of research now, it's been about three years of it into what goes on with Settled Status, is that the last people to sign up will be the most vulnerable, right? So anyone that reads newspapers, anyone in a city, anyone that's middle class, anyone in the profession of the EU citizens, they'll, they'll be signed, they're probably already signed up. They're the early joiners. The ones who won't are the people who um, don't speak English, work in agriculture, seasonal work, in remote locations, hard to reach. And these guys, that shit is primed for another windrush of guys that are living here for two, three years, don't even know they were supposed to sign up to something, haven't even fucking heard of it, probably might not even know what the word Brexit is, and suddenly, no, you're undocumented, mate. And that's when the 5 a.m. call comes from UK border, border force and puts you in the fucking van. So you've got the problem with citizens' rights. One thing we haven't talked about in terms of the Trump deal to New Deal is the money. Because if, the, if we were to elect to extend the transition period next summer, it will cost about 10 billion euros per year. Um, we will not get a rebate because we only paid up members till the end of 2020. So can you imagine Boris Johnson, Conservative Prime Minister, going to the EU to say, can you extend the transition period because I finally have to admit that you cannot negotiate a free trade agreement in eight months and um, I am going to pay 10 billion euros to the EU even though I've just been saying to the British public for the last eight months that we've left. I mean, I can't see that happening, right? So that is another reason why the kind of the trap door to New Deal is something that should really concern us, because he will never want to admit to the British public that his deal was a con, and they will rather go for New Deal and blame the EU that you know it's because of the EU we didn't get a free trade agreement than actually pay up for the transition. Am I am I missing something? No, you're spot on. And by the way, that's why that date for the extension is when it is. Because that's when they, next summer is when they start talking about a next seven-year financial window. So there is this stuff is aligned. It's not, you know, it's it's not by coincidence. But there needs there will be a financial expectation on Britain at the point of extension. That'll drive the ERG mad, but it will be the ERG by that stage, as you say, will basically be the whole of the fucking Tory party. But in actual fact, it will obviously be a requirement for us to have any kind of deal with the EU yeah, at all. I mean, let's not... I mean, there are 285 members of the Brexit Party now. That's where we are. OK? Every single Conservative has signed up to deliver Brexit on hard terms. Such a great line, Philip. Yeah, so, so that's where we are. Now, the idea... And this is why I don't understand the Gareth Snells and the and all the other Labour rebels, who, by the way, it was quite comic in the chamber this week because you had Nicky Morgan, a born-again Brexiteer, pointing out to Boris Johnson, oh, the next person to take an intervention is Gareth Snell, and pointing at him. And Gareth Snell had been given the question 
the intervention to ask by the Tory whips. I don't know what his local Labour Association must think of this, and they were standing up and down. These, so you had Caroline Flint, you had Jim Fitzpatrick, you had Gareth Snell, all bobbing up and down and being taken. And by the way, I spent an hour bobbing up and down, and I'm not. I don't feel uh, upset about this. I'm a, I've, you know, I've got I'm thick-skinned. I didn't get called, funnily enough, Ian. <laughs> but behind me, Gareth Snell did, Jim mm. Fitzpatrick did, in order to do interventions so that Boris Johnson could say, um, oh, yes, you're the honourable member for so-and-so is right, and I can confirm that, ABC. I mean, it really was embarrassing. It got to the point where we were actually clapping every time one of these characters stood up. What do they say to their constituents? across the country that there they are you'll get a letter from Dominic Cummins saying well done you've been a good lever you can show this to your constituents yeah I mean I know John Mann's going into the Lords you know um, but are they all going into the Lords after this I mean I I, I, I honestly Maybe Caroline Flint understand why these Labour members are doing this to, to facilitate a hard damaging Brexit delivered by Boris Johnson how does that play outside Outside the M25, nor in Midlands and the north of England, I don't think it can play very well. Uh, I, I agree, but I also think the, the, they're clearly not good students of political history, recent political history. I mean, the DUP have just been thrown under the bus by Boris Johnson, right? And, and before that, not to be sensitive, but the Lib Dems didn't do so well, well, well out of helping out the Conservatives. Yeah, either, on on know, AV like. referendum, I, I remember. I remember David Cameron conceding the AV referendum. And then when the referendum actually happened, campaigning against Nick Clegg, who was his deputy prime minister. Or you go further back, you look at the Scots Nats who voted with uh, Margaret Thatcher to uh, defeat Callaghan yeah. in 1979. Yeah. And then they ushered in, you know, a period of um, Thatcher's own. I mean, Fortunately, that shadow, shadow of 1979 is a long one, which is why they're not playing ball at the moment. Why the SNP are not playing ball. The SNP are, are not going to play ball. In fact, you know, there are, there's another long shadow that concerns me more, Ian, which is the shadow of Ramsay MacDonald. Because in the Labour Party, the last time a Labour leader went into a government of national unity, you know, it didn't end so well. And I think <laughs> it's amazing that here we are, what is it, 80, 90 years on from that point. And I actually was in the no lobby this evening, along with all the Labour voting against the Queen's speech. And I turned to a senior member and said, does Ramsay MacDonald still matter? And the answer was yes. And I think, I hope enough of the Labour Party can get beyond that because after the pretty disgraceful performance yet again from the Leader of the House um, this evening, this administration needs to be taken down a few pegs. The only way you take out this administration is stop it abusing power, stop it abusing its position in terms of what it says to the broader public, is actually by removing it. And it, the only way you can remove it, for sure, is via a vote of no confidence and an emergency administration. But before we get to that, do you see that there could be a bill that could be amended to give us a confirmatory referendum as an alternative to the Johnson deal? Um, yes, I do. I think we're going to get through this attempt to try to get a general election on Monday, and my expectation is it won't pass. I don't think Labour are going to fall into that obvious trap. Um, and after that, I think we may be able to facilitate a, a vote 
on a withdrawal agreement with a confirmatory vote attached. And let's wait and see whether enough parliamentarians realise that that's the moment to strike. I think, to be honest with you, and you and I, Sam, have been at this a long, long, long time, the, the time is now, to quote Maloko, the time is now, and I, I, I can't make the occasional cultural reference, and it doesn't have to be multicoloured swap shop. I don't know who writes this script. <laughs> keep going, keep going. And I actually think if you can bring about that vote, it's time to stand up, you know? The, the, that opportunity for enough colleagues to realise that a hard Brexit or a no-deal Brexit doesn't have the informed consent of the public. And the only alternative at the moment, the two alternatives, is general election or a referendum. The general election is a gift to this administration. Choose a referendum. Right. So, so you think there is scope to amend a bill, even, say, Boris Johnson's bill, with a referendum, and that could pass the House of Commons. The question I have, and I've always had, is I'm a Remainer and haven't been in government trying to implement leave, realised that it was a dumb idea trying to do it. So I didn't, on the 24th of June 2016, say, I want to go back. I actually thought, let's run with this referendum idea. Um, the result of referendum, I just realised all I was doing was trying to produce a facsimile of what we have, you know, and the way I've described it to friends is it's a bit like driving from London to come back to London and ending up, you know, somewhere random like Reading. It's kind of what leave is, right? We create a version of what we have that is not the same. But there are still a lot of independent conservatives who want to leave. You know, the so-called Gork Squad. Although they are described as Remainers by the Brexit press, because they are anti-no deal and they are willing to hold the government to account. They want to leave and want to leave with a deal. So given that is their fundamental position, where does the majority come from to get a confirmatory referendum passed in the Commons? Well, in view of the fact that they've all been told that they won't be Conservative candidates, apparently, in a snap election, certainly not the nine who voted against the programme motion this week. I don't quite know why they're... Well, it may be. I mean, I think the DUP are against the government's um, Brexit deal, in inverted commas. But what are they for? So what are they for? And I think that's a, a challenge for the DUP for lots of different reasons, and it's for them to resolve that. But I think in view of that, in view of the fact that the Tory, the independent former Conservative members of Parliament, I'm not so sure have anything more to hang on to, um, they're not going to be Conservative members of Parliament. But, but this would completely destroy their relationship with the Conservative Party. You and I didn't mind doing that. But some of them still care about it, right? Their friends are in the Conservative Party. Yeah, and it's not easy. Yeah, I mean, yeah. you, say, you say, Sam, that, that we didn't mind doing it. I actually did mind doing it. In, no, in, in some ways, because there were personal friendships and relationships that have formed over two to three decades. <laughs> but ultimately, if you're going to put the national interest first... That's what you do, and those relationships undeniably have been damaged as a consequence. So I don't think it was straightforward. So I have sympathy with people who have, um, you know, been members of a party for a long time and don't want to break that. But this is about the future of the country. And I can't, you know, just because my Christmas card list has now changed slightly, I'm really 
I'm not, you know, I'm looking forward to my Christmas card. Well, I, I could do with it being shorter than it currently is. It is now fi- it's currently 1,500 people I have to write Christmas cards to. Them. So maybe this has been a, a good thing for repetitive strain injury in my right hand every December. But I, but I, seriously, I can't, I can't get beyond the fact that this is about the national interest, and. I think if we put it down maybe next week or in the next couple of weeks, it's time everybody stood up. If you do not think that Brexit on these terms is in the national interest, vote for an alternative, which I think is quite democratic. It's like going back to the country and saying, look, you know that Brexit we promised that you were going to vote for in 2016? It doesn't actually exist. And because it doesn't actually exist, we're not so sure that you want it. So we want to be sure that you want it. I mean, I was speaking to someone this week, Sam. You can imagine if you, you had an injury to your arm and you, you go into a hospital and you sign a consent form and it says, if you do this, there's a strong chance you're going to have your arm cut off. Is that all right? And you consent to it. You go into the operation, the surgeon does his thing, comes around and, and the surgeon says, um, you know we said we had to cut your arm off. Well, we did. It turned out we didn't need to, but you consented to it. So we did it anyway. It doesn't work, does it? It doesn't wash. It's not right. And, and I think that until you, know, until you get to a point that the public actually consent to a legally and practically liberal Brexit, to go ahead in these circumstances is fundamentally undemocratic and actually it's morally wrong. OK, so... Do you want to come in there? Yeah, I mean, look, the thing is, I, I agree with everything you've just said. Like, morally, politically, I mean, that's obviously correct. A general election is not the right way to do this. A referendum is the right way. And especially, you know, when we were looking at, like, the fucking programme motion the other day, the idea that you just stuff this thing through, or, you know, along with accompanying documentation, 435 pages, or, um, is atrocious. My thing that I can't get past is that I just see no evidence that a confirmatory ballot that a confirmatory vote would get attached to this bill. There might be a chance, if the bill died, of of MPs in this parliament coming together on it. Even that, I'm really not sure about. But on this, I just don't see numbers. And, And so by the time that there's a point where you have to be like, I don't see the fucking numbers. And because I don't, you're just like, okay, now we need to find other avenues of trying to do this. So so that's an interesting question. So we're assuming that the extension will get granted. The extension will be to 31st of January 2020. Let's assume that... um, Bearing in mind, kind of your Macron comments from earlier on. Yeah, I mean, he'll be. Yeah, he'll, he'll get fucked. Yeah, okay. so, so Macron will sort of come to heel, as it as it were. Who knows? And th- we're not going to get a two week extension type thing, but who knows? But do we think this Parliament can deliver a referendum? Because that is that is, I think that is the key question Remainers are facing today. Because if you think this Parliament can deliver a referendum, then you want to do it here. If you don't think it can then you should be going for a general election in the hope of creating well, a Remain Parliament. Look at the numbers. You have 285 Conservatives, and let's say you have 12 Independent Conservatives. Okay, that's 297. Let's just say you have a few uh, Labour Independents. You get to, say, over 300. Okay? You take that off 639, which is essentially the number of people that vote in the House because Sinn Féin don't vote, Speaker, etc., You've got about 300 
what is it, 337, 336 versus 302, 303. I mean, the, the thing is, is that it's all about how many Labour rebels and what the DUP do. That's it, Ian. But that's our problem, I think, with the, with the referendum. So I don't, I, can't, I, I don't believe we will ever see the DUP fall behind a referendum. I don't believe we will ever see those Labour pro-dealers fall behind a referendum. And I don't believe we will ever see like, some of the independent Tories like, I don't know, you know, Philip Hammond or Rory Stewart. I, I don't see it. I don't see them moving. And that, that's a lot of people that aren't moving. I can just about, and frankly, I don't believe this. I, I think probably there would be a majority for the deal. I can just about see you might be able to get these guys to vote against the deal. DUP certainly, I think most of the Labour rebels in the end, the Labour pro-dealers, will eventually fall in line and vote against it. So you might be it. able to kill the deal. You might be able to kill the deal. And then you might be in another situation. However, by the time that we get to that point where we might have a chance at a referendum in this parliament once the deal is defeated, there is a lot of very, very, very dangerous moments for us there in which it is frankly, I think, quite likely to pass. And in that that's where my risk assessment stops and that's where I go well fu let's fucking roll the dice on an election then because my risk assessment on this parliament is looking worse and worse all the time and that makes me think fuck it we've got an avenue over here I, I think that I mean that is an interesting point because beyond getting a confirmatory referendum passed you then need a government that is actually going to implement the policy. Yeah, exactly. Given that the current Conservative government will not, you then need to find a new government. The new government then has to answer some pretty fundamental questions, like what is the question on the ballot paper? What is the franchise going to be? Are 16-year-olds going to be able to vote? Do all UK residents vote? You know, including EU citizens in that referendum campaign? And there is a serious question to ask whether this parliament will, is positioned well enough to deal with those questions, if, even if you had a caretaker government, which the Conservatives will boycott. Yeah. So you, it, I think it's not just getting the confirmatory referendum passed, it's everything that follows after that. And whether we think this parliament that has voted for nothing other than an extension so far will suddenly flip and start doing things like that. And imagine if it was a caretaker government that was doing that. Like, imagine if it's... I mean, you know, you, you guys are politicians, you're much better at this than I am. But, like, in, you always want to think about what your opponent least wants you to do. And if it's a caretaker government stitched together by parties that, frankly, struggle to, to do this on the back of a no-confidence vote, setting up the referendum, it seems like you're creating the narrative they would most like to have when they are going for the thing. So even if you could somehow create all these conditions where you can then pass a piece of legislation, the PR damage you'll be doing to yourself in the meantime for whether you're actually going to win it in the end seems to me to be quite substantial. One question I wanted to ask you, Ian, was about Parliament in general. How do you think it's bearing up under this current sort of Brexit assault? I, I can't... Why are you guys asking me this? You guys are the MPs. I know, but you know, you're, you're, you're this. <laughs> so weird. You're this. I, 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 I actually worry about the mental health of Parliament as a whole. Uh -huh. Late nights, people sleeping late, lots of tension, lots of drama. It makes for good TV. You know, lots of people are watching Parliament TV, but I think MPs are under considerable strain. 
because the truth is the vast majority want to do the right thing by their constituents, want to do the right thing by the country, and these are not easy calls to make. And um, I, I think it's incredibly difficult. And you've got a Downing Street operation that is willing to exploit that emotional vulnerability, not just on the side of parliament, but in the wider population. You know, the whole border Brexit thing is just weaponizing public exhaustion. You know, rather than going into it and saying, we know why this is difficult. You know, I've, what I've always said is, you take a country like Greenland with a population of 50,000 and one industry fishing, it took them three years to come out of the EEC in the early 80s. You know, the seventh largest economy in the world, you know, 45 years of integration, population of 66 million, it's not going to be done in three years. I mean, that's the kind of mature discussion you want. But actually what the government is doing is raising the temperature, making people more anxious, making people more uncertain. And I think that impacts on MPs as well. And that is incredibly worrying. Especially those ones without some kind of tribal defence, right? Like, you guys will know this more than anyone, that if you're, in one, if you're, if you're locked in, you're a Tory backbencher, you're voting for whatever Brexit, you're kind of safe. You've got this, this stuff around you. If you're in the Lib Dems, you're going to vote against yourself. You're kind of safe. You've got all this protective mechanism. If you are... So you Philip know, and I have moved to a safe haven, essentially. Yeah, but, but you would have had periods in between that where it was much less fucking comfortable and you guys kept your shit together. Now, you look at someone like right now, like I look at someone like Lisa Nandy, who, like, no one's going to challenge Lisa Nandy's decency. You know what I mean? Like, this is obviously a decent person who's genuinely working through this shit. But you are just adrift out of a tribe, out there in the cold, and the pounding abuse you're going to get every day from both sides, from leavers who will say, and also from Remainers who will just be like, why aren't, why aren't you standing up to this evil Tory, blah, 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 It's unbelievable. Now, that's the point where then we sit back and go, let's work out the calculations on the numbers of how everyone's going to vote, right? And you're like, fuck knows. That person is under tremendous emotional strain. You know, lo- there's loads of Labour and peace in this position. There'll be lots of independent Tories in that position, and it's hard to predict which way they'll go, or why they should be put through it in the first place. It's why I take my hat off to Dominic Grieve. I think I think he's a legend. <laughs> I just seen him on TV turning up at the Conservative Party conference, <laughs> doing interviews, <laughs> telling the world why he thought the Conservative Party was wrong. I just thought it takes a lot of intellectual toughness to put yourself uh, through that. But it's the end of the podcast and the start of a rare weekend when Parliament isn't sitting. Uh, will we ever get used to this? Um, we always finish the show by asking how we're going to recharge our batteries over the weekend in a momentary escape from the hurly-burly of politics. Ian, listeners to Remainers, Remaniacs, I think, are aware that you're a big fan of comic books now. That's news to me. Um, will you be relaxing with a pile of Batman and Incredible Hulk over the weekend? I mean, actually, literally, that's what I'm doing. Uh, <laughs> I've there's, there's got some Supermans as well. Yeah. Uh, uh, what I'm about, fucking, I mean, literally, there's an incredible Hulk issue sitting there, Immortal Hulk, waiting wait, for me when I get home. What about the Sky adaptation of Watchmen? Oh, man, that was... Have you seen that? Have you, have you seen that? No, I haven't, no. It is, like, it's genuinely fucking good. It's like when you... They're, they're obviously, they're adapting a thing that I cared about, you know, when I was a kid growing up. But they're adapting it in a way that it advances in real time. So the world that you dropped off and stopped paying attention to in 1986 then picks up in 2019. And off you go. And it's one of those things where you're just looking at it being like, 
I think I love this, but I am deeply fucking confused by what they've done with the shit that I read in bed when I was eight years old. It's genuinely fucking fascinating. Highly, highly, highly recommend it. So what would you rec- what comic book would you recommend to Philip and I if we wanted to escape Brexit reality? Okay, look, the, the comic I always recommend is called Preacher, which is a very, very bleak, violent, wonderful atheist text, but full of fun and sex and violence. I'm so, sure you could have a fucking laugh. Sounds an easy read. It does. <laughs> it sounds oh, no, like it's, it. oh man, it's good fun. It's really good fun. However, in this case, why not just go for Watchmen? It's political, it's incredibly cerebral, it's really interesting, full of good characters. Give it a shot. Hmm. What about you, Philip? What are you doing? Well, I, every time you weekend. ask me this, Sam, I always say the rugby. Obviously, the rugby on yes. Saturday is a big match. I'm actually speaking at Lib Dem Regional Conference on Saturday afternoon. Um, and then family. It's always family with me, so. Excellent. Well, I've heard of rugby. That's what the normal humans do on their <laughs> weekends, right? No, I, I, I know about this well, shit. The, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the, the rugby's going to be big in my household. My wife is a New Zealander, uh-huh. right? So, so you'll yeah. be supporting New Zealand, Sam, uh, is that what you're saying? No, 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 no I'm supporting England. The question is our children. You know? <laughs> but you must know support. which way they're going. We, we, you must know which way they're well, going. They, my, my five-year-old is very politically, he changes it every day. You know, who he's going to be supporting. Oh, he's using you, basically. <laughs> he's he using leverage. Well, I think he can't like, decide, but it's... Um, oh, okay. so, so that's going to be it. And, um, yeah, and just try and see a bit more of the, of the children, I, I think is what I'm going to be doing this weekend. I really get the sense that these guys aren't going to read the comics that I've recommended. No, I, don't, no, no, no. I don't know what it is, but I just get this impression. <laughs> you like, have to yeah. shove it through my letterbox. <laughs> <laughs> and that, that's the end of another edition of On the House. Elections, extensions and pauses. We'll be back next week. Don't forget to subscribe on your favourite podcast app so you don't miss an episode. Thanks to Ian Dunt. We'll see you in the lobby, no doubt. It's goodbye from me, Philip Lee. And from me, Sam Gima. We'll see you next time. On the House was presented by Dr. Philip Lee, MP, and Sam Gima, MP. Audio production was by me, Alex Reese, and the producer is Andrew Harrison. On the House is a Podmasters production.